Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. The path begins with right view belonging to the wisdom group of the path. Wisdom, panya, is a broad category constituting everything from an intellectual or conceptual understanding through procedural knowledge of some skill to an intuitive feel for how things really are. The path begins with an intellectual understanding dependent on faith and progresses to a more intuitive understanding gained through direct seeing for ourselves, such that faith becomes less and less necessary to sustain our understanding. This latter wisdom is generally called knowledge and vision, or knowing and seeing, or simply insight. It is, for the most part, a product of right concentration, keeping in mind that right concentration has already folded in right mindfulness and right effort, along with the rest of the path. The Pali word jnana, knowledge, built on the same root as panya, wisdom, is here most generally understood as intuitive wisdom. Vision or seeing roots knowledge and experience. The two words often are found together in the compound knowledge and vision of things as they are. Yata bhuta jnana dasana. That one could fulfill the wisdom group without having fulfilled the concentration group? That is not possible. Bhikkhus develop concentration. A monk with concentration understands in accordance with reality. When right concentration does not exist, for one failing right concentration, the proximate cause is destroyed for knowledge and vision of things as they really are. The knowledges are for one with concentration, not for one without concentration. So the foregoing are several quotes from different suttas of the Buddha. Right view, kept in mind through mindfulness, gives us a lot of material for investigation. Right concentration, in effect, transforms right views into knowledge and vision. When his mind is thus collected in concentration, is purified, bright, rid of blemishes, free of taints, soft, workable, steady, and attained to imperturbability, he bends and inclines his mind toward knowledge and vision. He understands This, my body, is material made of four elements. Just as if a man with good sight were to examine a barrel gem in his hand, saying, This barrel gem is beautiful, well-made, clear, and transparent, and through it is strung a blue 
yellow, red, white, or brown string. In just the same way, he inclines his mind to knowledge and vision, to potency, understands the Four Noble Truths. Why do we want to develop wisdom beyond right view? A primary reason is that it is necessary to perfect purity of mind and therefore to perfect virtue. With limited wisdom, we can still correct our conduct and bad patterns, but we cannot correct the most recalcitrant ways we have of misperceiving the world. When, Bahia, there is for you in the scene only the scene, in the herd only the herd, in the sensed only the sensed, in the cognized only the cognized, then Bahia, there is no you in connection with that. When Bahia, there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When Bahia, there is no you there, then Bahia, you are neither here nor there nor in between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. Most of us have a very deep-rooted view that we are a clear and substantial separate self. Unfortunately, this is an impediment to perfecting virtue. Most fundamentally, we misperceive the world because of a constant bias in favor of this needy self. Nonetheless, through the practice of ethical conduct, we gradually learn to behave toward others as if that self were barely there, by not stealing, by not harming, and so on. Through the practice of purification of mind, we can mitigate the affective mental factors that self-manifests, the various forms of greed and hatred that arise in the self's quest for personal advantage, to try to wrest control of our thoughts away from the self. Now, all of this will tend to loosen the iron grip of the self, but not eliminate it. Through the development of wisdom, we get at our most recalcitrant views, including the view of self. More fundamentally, we come to know the conditional or fabricated nature of what we once took to be solid and real. This is knowledge and vision of things as they really are. Ultimately, the development of wisdom also underlies the goal of awakening, the final ending of all suffering, the deathless nibbana that transcends the karma committed by the fabricated self. In the upcoming talks, we'll deepen our understanding of right view to comprehend the conditional factors implicated in the arising of the deluded human condition, and that how these are broken up with the light of wisdom mediated by concentration. In the final talks in this series, we endeavor to explain the nature of the higher attainments, particularly complete awakening. But in the meantime, let me talk about the practice of cultivating mind. Right effort and right mindfulness can each be practiced independently of right concentration. But it's in right concentration that the three become unified, 
particularly in the specialized practice of seated meditation. Right effort in everyday life begins with attending to skillful and unskillful thoughts as they arise in the mind. You can begin to do this in a Buddhist life with merit-making for a primary factor in the merit gained in an act of generosity is the intention behind the act. Your unskillful intentions are highlighted whenever they run up against a precept you are trying to uphold. With time, you will learn to monitor your intentions habitually throughout the day. With every action you undertake, you should become consistently aware of the motivations behind it, because that defines its karmic quality. As you begin this practice, you might be embarrassed at how much unwholesomeness you discover as a constant stream of factors such as anger, lust, deluded views, fear, stress, envy, jealousy, spite, restlessness, anxiety, arrogance, and pride arises. It's important to accept this stream as a natural part of the untrained human condition, lest you feel guilty. Guilt is just queuing up another unskillful thought, one rooted in aversion behind the others. However, just this mindfulness has a way of wearing down our unskillful habit patterns over time. This is dispassion or fading away. With persistence and time, the mind shifts remarkably. This is purity of mind. In addition to the list of mental techniques involved in right effort provided earlier, you are likely to discover some of your own from changing your perspective or conceptualization of the situation to bringing the thought into the focus of attention until it dissipates of itself. There are a couple of useful modern books that bring together Buddhist teachings specifically on anger, which many of us identify as an area of particular personal weakness. Right mindfulness is practiced in conjunction with any other path factor. For instance, right action in a particular situation requires mindfulness to note where you might be about to break a precept or to note the arising of unwholesome intentions. Right effort requires constant evaluation of wholesomeness and unwholesomeness. Ethical practices engage us constantly in mindfulness because they challenge us continually to recall what we are supposed to be doing, often in contradiction to our habituated impulses. Mindfulness and non-distractedness can be cultivated in everyday life by keeping the present task firmly in mind. For instance, during any day, you probably perform the task of leaving a house or building many times. If you're like most people, your mind is probably through the door, down the hall, out on the street, and in your car, even before you get up from your chair. You'll never even notice how you got to your car. To be mindful is to be present with the turning of the doorknob, to be present as the door clicks in place, to be present with your steps. Make this a habit. Routine tasks sound dull 
but they are excellent opportunities for mindfulness. If you're cutting potatoes, see if you can put everything else out of your mind that is not potato cutting for the few minutes you are engaged in this task. In fact, make the task a little more challenging. Try to cut the potatoes into pieces of equal size. Then, if you relax your mindfulness, the sizes will begin to lose their uniformity. Formalities and ritual are, it may surprise you to learn, very good opportunities for developing mindfulness because they require a certain amount of attention. You can even invent your own, for instance, around how and when you brush your teeth. Again, we generally think ritual or routine is boring in our culture, but it serves to improve mindfulness. Become aware of how our lifestyles and culture discourage mindfulness and make adjustments accordingly. Mindfulness becomes difficult when there is too much going on at once. When the kids are barking at you, the dog needs a ride to his piano lesson, the TV is trying to sell you something that is whiter than white, your cell phone is ringing, and you don't know how you are going to pay the mortgage. You might love to multitask and think that life is empty if a lot of things are not going on at once. You might be addicted to the dispersed mind, while the Buddhist way of being thrives on simplicity. Many of us love to drink alcohol, which disperses the mind so much that we forget our cares often while fostering new ones. Most of what you think of as modern conveniences are just ways to avoid the effort of being mindful. For instance, you have different buzzers that go off to remind you of things that you would otherwise have had to be mindful about, such as fastening your seatbelt. Doors open for you so that you don't even need to touch, much less be mindful of, a physical doorknob. You do best to try to neutralize these tendencies. Cultivating simplicity tends to reduce potential distractions, so we should not make too many commitments nor live beyond our means. Try to have no debt, nor own a lot of things. Generally, low-tech demands more mindfulness than high-tech. You should give up your addiction to multitasking if you have one. If you're cutting potatoes in the kitchen, you should not listen to the radio. You should not leave the TV on all the time, nor talk on the phone while driving. Attending exclusively to the primary task at hand is to be mindful. For advanced practice in which you engage with the attendings of mindfulness and are likely to reach concentration, you should seek meditation instruction from a qualified teacher. Everyone develops differently and occasionally gets stuck in often creative ways that a teacher can help with. My task here has been to provide a conceptual overview of meditation and to put it in its broader context, not to provide hands-on instruction. There are also many excellent books, videos, and audios available that can get you started. Be aware, however, that the instructions vary among and within modern Buddhist schools and may obscure the Buddhist teachings in various ways, even while preserving their intent. 
For instance, within the Theravada school, the meanings of samadhi and jhana have shifted historically to become equated with absorption. Accordingly, concentration has become an optional practice, and the whole causal sequence from mindfulness to concentration and from concentration to insight is obscured in their instruction. What is known as vipassana practice otherwise generally stays close to the attendings of mindfulness, and where mindfulness arises, the remaining factors of awakening will, with diligence, also arise. The Zen instruction in Shikantaza, Japanese for just sitting, is taught in terms even more radically removed from the Buddha's instructions, but much simpler. The line between mindfulness and concentration is vaguely defined in Zen, but I can report from personal experience that the results are very similar, such that each of the steps in the Buddha's instructions are clearly experienced in Zen meditation, even if they're not named. Although the Buddha does not seem to have taught nor endorsed absorption meditation, most Vipassana teachers recommend it as a preparation for mindfulness practice, and I concur. Early forays before the path is well developed into simple absorption is a way to still our busy modern minds and to get a feel for the power of the collected mind. Absorption meditation typically involves a practice of following the breath with a very narrow focus of attention and with the goal of becoming completely absorbed in the breath. Although this is not conducive to insight, you are likely to achieve states of calm very quickly. This will encourage and open up space for Buddhist concentration practice. We've now discussed each of the eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path and the three groups of wisdom, virtue, and cultivation. But we're not done. Beginning next week, we'll return to wisdom and right view in more detail, the kind of detail that reveals itself through cultivation. This is a deep look at human psychology of how we make life so difficult for ourselves and what we can do about it. 